Chapter 2 1838 at the age of 20 to 21 Part 2 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau Volume 1 1837 to 1846 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Chapter 2 Part 2 Scraps from a lecture on society written March 14, 1838, delivered before our Lyceum, April 11th. Every proverb in the newspapers originally stood for a truth. Thus, the proverb that man was made for society, so long as it was not allowed to conflict with another important truth, deceived no one. But now that the same words have come to stand for another thing, it may be for a lie we are obliged, in order to preserve its significance, to write it anew, so that properly it will be read, Society was made for man. Man is not at once born into society, hardly into the world. The world that he is hides for a time the world that he inhabits. That which properly constitutes the life of every man is a profound secret. Yet this is what every one would give most to know, but is himself most backward to impart. Hardly a rood of land but can show its fresh wound or indelible scar in proof that earlier or later man has been there. The mass never comes up to the standard of its best member, but on the contrary degrades itself to a level with the lowest. As the reformers say, it is a leveling down, not up. Hence, the mass is only another name for the mob. The inhabitants of the earth assembled in one place would constitute the greatest mob. The mob is spoken of as an insane and blinded animal. Magistrates say it must be humored. They apprehend it may incline this way or that, as villagers dread an inundation, not knowing whose land may be flooded, nor how many bridges carried away. One goes to a cattle show, expecting to find many men and women assembled, and beholds only working oxen and neat cattle. He goes to a commencement thinking that there at least he may find the men of the country, but such, if there were any, are completely merged in the day, and have become so many walking commencements, so that he is fain to take himself out of sight and hearing of the orator, lest he lose his own identity in the non-entities around him but you are getting all the while further and further from true society. Your silence was an approach to it, but your conversation is only a refuge from the encounter of men. 
as though men were to be satisfied with a meeting of heels and not heads. Nor is it better with private assemblies or meetings together with a sociable design of acquaintances so called, that is to say, of men and women who are familiar with the lineaments of each other's countenances, who eat, drink, sleep, and transact the business of living within the circuit of a mile. With a beating heart he fares him forth by the light of the stars to this meeting of gods. But the illusion speedily vanishes. What at first seemed to him nectar and ambrosia is discovered to be plain bohea and short gingerbread. Then with what speed does he throw off his straitjacket of a godship and play the one-eared, two-mouthed mortal, thus proving his title to the epithet applied to him of old by Homer of Merops Anthropus, or that possesses an articulating voice. But unfortunately, we have as yet invented no rule by which the stranger may know when he has culminated. We read that among the Finlanders, when one, quote, has succeeded in rendering himself agreeable, it is a custom at an assemblage for all the women present to give him on the back a sudden slap, when it is least expected. And the compliment is in proportion to the weight of the blow. It is provoking when one sits waiting the assembling together of his neighbors around his hearth, to behold merely their clay houses, for the most part newly shingled and clapboarded, and not unfrequently with a fresh coat of paint trundled to his door. He has but to knock slightly at the outer gate of one of these shingle palaces, to be assured that the master or mistress is not at home. After all, the field of battle possesses many advantages over the drawing-room. There, at least, is no room for pretension or excessive ceremony, no shaking of hands or rubbing of noses, which make one doubt your sincerity but hardy as well as hard hand-play. It at least exhibits one of the faces of humanity, the former only a mask. The utmost nearness to which men approach each other amounts barely to a mechanical contact, as when you rub two stones together, though they emit an audible sound, yet do they not actually touch each other. In obedience to an instinct of their nature, men have pitched their cabins and planted corn and potatoes within speaking distance of one another, and so formed towns and villages. But they have not associated, they have only assembled, and society has signified only a convention of men. When I think of a playhouse, 
it is as if we had not time to appreciate the follies of the day in detail as they occur and so devoted an hour of our evening to laughing or crying at them in the lump despairing of a more perfect intercourse or perhaps never dreaming that such is desirable or at least possible we are contented to act our part in what deserves to be called the great farce not drama of life like pitiful and mercenary stock actors whose business it is to keep up the semblance of a stage our least deed like the young of the land crab wends its way to the sea of cause and effect as soon as born and makes a drop there to eternity let ours be like the meeting of two planets not hastening to confound their jarring spheres but drawn together by the influence of a subtle attraction soon to roll diverse in their respective orbits from this their perigee or point of nearest approach if the neighbor hail thee to inquire how goes the world feel thyself put to thy trumps to return a true and explicit answer plant the feet firmly and willy-nilly dole out to him with strict and conscientious impartiality his modicum of a response let not society be the element in which you swim or are tossed about at the mercy of the waves but be rather a strip of firm land running out into the sea, whose base is daily washed by the tide, but whose summit only the spring tide can reach. But, after all, such a morsel of society as this will not satisfy a man. But like those women of Malamaco and Pelestrina, who when their husbands are fishing at sea repair to the shore and sing their shrill songs at evening till they hear the voices of their husbands in reply borne to them over the water so go we about indefatigably chanting our stanza of the lay and awaiting the response of a kindred soul out of the distance the Indian Acts, April 1st. The Indian must have possessed no small share of vital energy to have rubbed industriously stone upon stone for long months till at length he had rubbed out an axe or pestle, as though he had said in the face of the constant flux of things, I at least will live an enduring life friendship april eighth i think a while of love and while i think love is to me a world soul meat and sweetest drink and close connecting link tween heaven and earth i only know it is not how or why my greatest happiness however hard i try not 
if I were to die, can I explain? I fain would ask my friend how it can be, but when the time arrives, then love is more lovely than anything to me, and so I'm dumb. For if the truth were known, love cannot speak, but only thinks and does, though surely out will leak without the help of Greek or any tongue. A man may love the truth and practice it, beauty he may admire and goodness not omit, as much as may be fit to reverence. But only when these three together meet, as they always incline, and make one soul the seat and favorite retreat of loveliness. When under kindred shape, like loves and hates, and a kindred nature proclaim us to be mates, exposed to equal fates eternally. And each may other help and service do, drawing love's bands more tight, service he ne'er shall rue, while one and one make two, and two are one. In such case only doth man fully prove, fully as man can do, what power there is in love, his inmost soul to move resistlessly. Two sturdy oaks, I mean, which side by side withstand the winter's storm, and spite of wind and tide grow up the meadow's pride, for both are strong. Above they barely touch, but undermined, down to their deepest source, admiring you shall find their roots are intertwined inseparably. Conversation April 15th Thomas Fuller relates that, quote, in Marianthshire, in Wales, there are high mountains whose hanging tops come so close together that shepherds on the tops of several hills may audibly talk together. Yet will it be a day's journey for their bodies to meet, so vast is the hollowness of the valleys betwixt them. As much may be said in a moral sense of our intercourse in the plains, for though we may audibly converse together, yet is there so vast a gulf of hollowness between that we are actually many days' journey from a veritable communication. Steamships, April 24th Men have been contriving new means and modes of motion. Steamships have been westering during these late days and nights on the Atlantic waves, the fuglers of a new evolution to this generation. Meanwhile, plants spring silently by the brooksides, and the grim woods wave indifferent. The earth emits no howl, pot 
on fire simmers and seethes, and men go about their business. The Bluebirds, April 26th. In the midst of the poplar that stands by our door, we planted a bluebird box, and we hoped before the summer was o'er a transient pair to coax. One warm summer's day the bluebirds came and lighted on our tree. But at first the wanderers were not so tame, but they were afraid of me. They seemed to come from the distant south, just over the Walden Wood, and they skimmed it along with open mouth, close by where the bellows stood. Warbling, they swept round the distant cliff, and they warbled it over the lee, and over the blacksmith's shop in a jiff did they come warbling to me. They came and sat on the box's top, without looking into the hole, and only from this side to that did they hop, as twere a common well-pole. Methinks I had never seen them before, nor indeed had they seen me, till I chanced to stand by our back door, and they came to the poplar tree. In course of time they built their nest, and reared a happy brood, and every morn they piped their best as they flew away to the wood. Thus wore the summer hours away to the bluebirds and to me, and every hour was a summer's day, so pleasantly lived we. They were a world within themselves, and I a world in me. Up in the tree the little elves with their callow family. One morn the wind blowed cold and strong, and the leaves went whirling away. The birds prepared for their journey long, that raw and gusty day. Boreas came blustering down from the north and ruffled their azure smocks. So they launched them forth, though somewhat loath, by way of the old cliff rocks. Meanwhile, the earth jogged steadily on in her mantle of purest white, and anon another spring was born when winter was vanished quite. And I wandered forth o'er the steamy earth and gazed at the mellow sky, but never before from the hour of my birth had I wandered so thoughtfully. For never before was the earth so still, and never so mild was the sky. The river, the fields, the woods, and the hill seemed to heave an audible sigh. I felt that the heavens were all around and the earth was all below, as when in the ears there rushes a sound which thrills you from top to toe. I dreamed that I was a waking thought, 
a something I hardly knew. Not a solid piece, nor an empty knot, but a drop of morning dew. Twas the world and I at a game of bow-peep, as a man would dodge his shadow, an idea becalmed in eternity's deep, tween Lima and Sagrado. Anon a faintly warbled note from out the azure deep into my ears did gently float as is the approach of sleep. It thrilled but startled not my soul across my mind strange memories gleamed as often distant scenes unroll when we have lately dreamed. The bluebird had come from the distant south to his box in the poplar tree, and he opened wide his slender mouth on purpose to sing to me. End of chapter 2, part 2「Eighteen thirty-eight, at the age of twenty to twenty-one, part three, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume one, eighteen thirty-seven to eighteen forty-six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two, part three. Journey to Maine. May third to fourth. Boston to Portland. What indeed is this earth to us of New England but a field for Yankee speculation? The Nantucket whaler goes a fishing round it and so knows it, what it is, how long, how broad, and that no tortoise sustains it. He who has visited the confines of his real estate looking out on all sides into space, will feel a new inducement to be the lord of creation. We must all pay a small tribute to Neptune. The chief engineer must once have been seasick. Midnight, head over the boat side, between sleeping and waking, with glimpses of one or more lights in the vicinity of Cape Ann. Bright moonlight, the effect heightened by seasickness. Beyond that light yonder have my lines hitherto been cast, but now I know that there lies not the whole world, for I can say it is there and not here. May 4th, Portland there is a proper and only right way to enter a city as well as to make advances to a strange person neither will allow of the least forwardness nor bustle a sensitive person can hardly elbow his way boldly laughing and talking into a strange town without experiencing some twinges of conscience as when he has treated a stranger with too much familiarity. May 5th. Portland to Bath via Brunswick. Bath 
to Brunswick. Each one's world is but a clearing in the forest, so much open and enclosed ground. When the mail coach rumbles into one of these, the villagers gaze after you with a compassionate look, as much as to say, where have you been all this time that you make your debut in the world at this late hour? Nevertheless, here we are. Come and study us, that you may learn men and manners. May 6th. Brunswick to Augusta, via Gardiner and Hallowell. May 7th. We occasionally meet an individual of a character and disposition so entirely the reverse of our own that we wonder if he can indeed be another man like ourselves. We doubt if we could ever draw any nearer to him and understand him. Such was the old English gentleman whom I met with today in H., Though I peered in at his eyes, I could not discern myself reflected therein. The chief wonder was how we could ever arrive at so fair-seeming an intercourse upon so small ground of sympathy. He walked and fluttered like a strange bird at my side, prying into and making a handle of the least circumstance. The bustle and rapidity of our communication were astonishing. We skated in our conversation. All at once he would stop short in the path, and, in an abstracted air, query whether the steamboat had reached Bath or Portland, addressing me from time to time as his familiar genius who could understand what was passing in his mind without the necessity of uninterrupted oral communication. May 8th. Augusta to Bangor, via China. May 10th. Bangor to Old Town. The railroad from Bangor to Old Town is civilization shooting off in a tangent into the forest. I had much conversation with an old Indian at the latter place, who sat dreaming upon a scow at the waterside and striking his deerskin moccasins against the planks, while his arms hung listlessly by his side. He was the most communicative man I had met. Talked of hunting and fishing, old times and new times, pointing up the Penobscot he observed, two or three mile up the river, one beautiful country. And then, as if he would come as far to meet me as I had gone to meet him, he exclaimed, Ugh, one very hard time. But he had mistaken his man. May 11th. Bangor to Belfast via Saturday Cove. May 12th, Belfast. May 13th, to Castine by sailboat, Cinderella. May 14th, Castine to Belfast by packet, Captain Skinner. Found the poems of Burns 
and an odd volume of the spectator in the cabin. May 15th. Belfast to Bath via Thomaston. May 16th to Portland. May 17th to Boston and Concord. May morning. May 21st. The schoolboy loitered on his way to school, scorning to live so rare a day by rule, so mild the air a pleasure twas to breathe, for what seems heaven above was earth beneath. Soured neighbors chatted by the garden pale, nor quarreled who should drive the needed nail. The most unsocial made new friends that day, as when the sun shines, husbandmen make hay. How long I slept I know not, but at last I felt my consciousness returning fast. For Zephyr rustled past with leafy tread, and heedlessly with one heel grazed my head. My eyelids opened on a field of blue, for close above a nodding violet grew. A part of heaven, it seemed, which one could scent, its blue commingling with the firmament. Walden, June 3rd True our converse a stranger is to speech, only the practised ear can catch the surging words that break and die upon thy pebbled lips. Thy flow of thought is noiseless as the lapse of thy own waters, wafted as in the morning mist up from thy surface, so that the passive soul doth breathe it in, and is infected with the truth thou wouldest express. E'en the remotest stars have come in troops, and stooped low to catch the benediction of thy countenance. Oft as the day came round, impartial has the sun exhibited himself before thy narrow skylight, nor has the moon for cycles failed to roll this way, as oft as elsewhither and tell thee of the night. No cloud so rare, but hitherward it stalked, and in thy face looked doubly beautiful. Oh, tell me what the winds have writ for the last thousand years on the blue vault that spans thy flood, or sun-transferred and delicately reprinted for thy own private reading. Somewhat within these latter days I've read, but surely there was much that would have thrilled the soul, which human eye saw not. I would give much to read that first bright page, wet from a virgin press, when Eurus, Boreas, and the host of airy quill-drivers first dipped their pens in mist. June 14th. Truth, goodness, beauty, those celestial thrins, continually are born 
e'en now the universe with thousand throats and eke with greener smiles its joy confesses at their recent birth strange that so many fickle gods as fickle as the weather throughout dame nature's provinces should always pull together june sixteenth in these busy streets domains of trade man is a surly porter or a vain and hectoring bully who can claim no nearer kindredship with me than brotherhood by law cliffs july eighth the loudest sound that burdens here the breeze is the woods whisper tis when we choose to list audible sound and when we list not it is calm profound tongues were provided but to vex the ear with superficial thoughts when deeper thoughts upswell the jarring discord of harsh speech is hushed and senses seem as little as may be to share the ecstasy heroism july thirteenth what a hero one can be without moving a finger the world is not a field worthy of us nor can we be satisfied with the plains of troy a glorious strife seems waging within us yet so noiselessly that we but just catch the sound of the clarion ringing of victory born to us on the breeze there are in each the seeds of a heroic ardor which need only to be stirred in with the soil where they lie by an inspired voice or pen to bear fruit of a divine flavor suspicion july fifteenth what though friends misinterpret your conduct if it is right in the sight of god and nature the wrong if there be any pertains only to the wrongdoer nor is the integrity of your relations to the universe affected but you may gather encouragement from their mistrust if the friend withhold his favor yet does greater float gratuitous on the zephyr truth august fourth whatever of past or present wisdom has published itself to the world is palpable falsehood till it come and utter itself by my side sphere music august fifth some sounds seem to reverberate along the plain and then settle to earth again like dust such are noise discord jargon but such only as spring heavenward and i may catch from steeples and hilltops in their upward course which are the more refined parts of the former are the true sphere music pure unmixed music in which no wail mingles divine service in the academy hall 
in dark places and dungeons these words might perhaps strike root and grow but utter them in the daylight and their dusky hues are apparent from this window i can compare the written with the preached word within is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth without grain fields and grasshoppers which give those the lie direct the times of the universe august tenth nor can all the vanities that so vex the world alter one whit the measure that night has chosen but ever it must be short particular metre the human soul is a silent harp in god's choir whose strings need only to be swept by the divine breath to chime in with the harmonies of creation every pulse beat is in exact time with the cricket's chant and the tickings of the death watch in the wall alternate with these if you can consciousness august thirteenth if with closed eyes and ears i consult consciousness for a moment immediately are all walls and barriers dissipated earth rolls from under me and i float by the impetus derived from the earth and the system a subjective heavily laden thought in the midst of an unknown and infinite sea or else heave and swell like a vast ocean of thought without rock or headland where are all riddles solved all straight lines making there their two ends to meet eternity and space gambling familiarly through my depths i am from the beginning knowing no end no aim no sun illumines me for i dissolve all lesser lights in my own intenser and steadier light i am a restful kernel in the magazine of the universe resource men are constantly dinging in my ears their fair theories and plausible solutions of the universe but ever there is no help and i return again to my shoreless islandless ocean and fathom unceasingly for a bottom that will hold an anchor that it may not drag sabbath bell august nineteenth the sound of the sabbath bell whose farthest waves are at this instant breaking on these cliffs does not awaken pleasing associations alone its muse is wonderfully condescending and philanthropic one involuntarily leans on his staff to humor the unusually meditative mood it is as the sound of many catechisms and religious books twanging a canting peal round the world and seems to issue from some egyptian temple and echo along the shore of the nile 
right opposite to Pharaoh's palace, and Moses in the bulrushes, startling a multitude of storks and alligators basking in the sun. Not so these larks and peewees of musketaquid. One is sick at heart of this pagoda worship. It is like the beating of gongs in a Hindu subterranean temple. Holy War, August 21st. Passion and appetite are always an unholy land in which one may wage most holy war. Let him steadfastly follow the banner of his faith till it is planted on the enemy's citadel. Nor shall he lack fields to display his valor in, nor straits worthy of him. For when he has blown his blast, and smote those within reach, invisible enemies will not cease to torment him, who yet may be starved out in the garrisons where they lie. Scripture, August 22nd. How thrilling a noble sentiment in the oldest books, in Homer, in Zendavesta, or Confucius. It is a strain of music wafted down to us on the breeze of time through the aisles of innumerable ages. By its very nobleness it is made near and audible to us. Evening Sounds, August 26th How strangely sounds of revelry strike the ear from over-cultivated fields by the woodside, while the sun is declining in the west. It is a world we had not known before. We listen and are capable of no mean act or thought. We tread on Olympus and participate in the councils of the gods. Homer It does one's heart good if Homer but say the sun sets, or... Quote, as when beautiful stars accompany the bright moon through the serene heavens, and the woody hills and cliffs are discerned through the mild light, and each star is visible, and the shepherd rejoices in his heart. End quote. The Loss of a Tooth August 27th Verily, I am the creature of circumstances. Here I have swallowed an indispensable tooth, and so am no whole man, but a lame and halting piece of manhood. I am conscious of no gap in my soul, but it would seem that now the entrance to the oracle has been enlarged the more rare and commonplace the responses that issue from it. I have felt cheap, and hardly dared hold up my head among men ever since this accident happened. Nothing can I do as well and freely as before. Nothing do I undertake, but I am hindered and balked by this circumstance. What a great matter a little spark kindleth. 
I believe if I were called at this moment to rush into the thickest of the fight, I should halt for lack of so insignificant a piece of armor as a tooth. Virtue and truth go undefended, and falsehood and affectation are thrown in my teeth, though I am toothless. One does not need that the earth quake for the sake of excitement, when so slight a crack proves such an impassable moat. But let the lame man shake his leg, and match himself with the fleetest in the race. So shall he do what is in him to do. But let him who has lost a tooth open his mouth wide and gabble, lisp, and sputter never so resolutely. Deformity, August 29th. Here at the top of Noshatukt, this mild August afternoon, I can discern no deformed thing. The profane haymakers in yonder meadow are yet the haymakers of poetry. Forsooth, Faustus, and Amentus. Yonder schoolhouse of brick, than which, near at hand, nothing can be more moat-like to my eye, serves even to heighten the picturesqueness of the scene barns and outbuildings which in the nearness mar by their presence the loveliness of nature are not only endurable but observed where they lie by some waving field of grain or patch of woodland prove a very sinecure to the pensive eye let man after infinite hammering and din of crows uprear a deformity in the plain Yet will nature have her revenge on the hilltop. Retire a stone's throw, and she will have changed his base metal into gold. Crickets The crackling flight of grasshoppers is a luxury. And pleasant is it when summer has once more followed in the steps of winter to hear scald cricket piping a nibelungen lead in the grass. It is the most infinite of singers. Wiselier had the Greeks chosen a golden cricket and let the grasshopper eat grass. One opens both his ears to the invisible, incessant choir and doubts if it be not earth herself chanting for all time. Genii in the vulgar daylight of our self-conceit, good genii are still overlooking and conducting us, as the stars look down on us by day as by night, and we observe them not. Sphere Music, September 2nd The cocks chant a strain of which we never tire. Some there are who find pleasure in the melody of birds and chirping of crickets, ay, even the peeping of frogs. Such faint sounds as these are for the most part 
heard above the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth which so unhallow the sabbath among us the moan the earth makes is after all a very faint sound infinitely inferior in volume to its creakings of joy and gleeful murmurs so that we may expect the next balloonist will rise above the utmost range of discordant sounds into the region of pure melody never so loud was the wail but it seemed to taper off into a piercing melody and note of joy which lingered not amid the clods of the valley creeds september third the only faith that men recognize is a creed but the true creed which we unconsciously live by and which rather adopts us than we it is quite different from the written or preached one men anxiously hold fast to their creed as to a straw thinking this does them good service because their sheet anchor does not drag rivers september fifth for the first time it occurred to me this afternoon what a piece of wonder a river is a huge volume of matter ceaselessly rolling through the fields and meadows of this substantial earth making haste from the high places by stable dwellings of men and egyptian pyramids to its restless reservoir one would think that by a very natural impulse the dwellers upon the headwaters of the mississippi and amazon would follow in the trail of their waters to see the end of the matter End of chapter 2, part 3. Chapter 2, 1838, at the age of 20 to 21, part 4, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume 1, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part Four. Homer, September Seventh. When Homer's messengers repair to the tent of Achilles, we do not have to wonder how they get there, but step by step accompany them along the shore of the resounding sea. Flow of spirits in youth, September Fifteenth. How unaccountable the flow of spirits in youth. You may throw sticks and dirt into the current, and it will only rise the higher. Dam it up you may, but dry it up you may not, for you cannot reach its source. If you stop up this avenue or that, anon it will come gurgling out where you least expected and wash away all fixtures youth grasps at happiness as an inalienable right the tear does no sooner gush than glisten 
who shall say when the tear that sprung of sorrow first sparkled with joy alma natura september twentieth it is a luxury to muse by a wallside in the sunshine of a september afternoon to cuddle down under a gray stone and hearken to the siren song of the cricket day and night seem henceforth but accidents and the time is always a still eventide and as the close of a happy day parched fields and mullins gilded with the slanting rays are my diet i know of no word so fit to express this disposition of nature as alma natura compensation september twenty third if we will be quiet and ready enough we shall find compensation in every disappointment if a shower drives us for shelter to the maple grove or the trailing branches of the pine yet in their recesses with microscopic eye we discover some new wonder in the bark or the leaves or the fungi at our feet we are interested by some new resource of insect economy or the chickadee is more than usually familiar we can study nature's nooks and corners then my boots october sixteenth anon with gaping fearlessness they quaff the dewy nectar with a natural thirst or wet their leathern lungs where cranberries lurk with sweeter wine than kian lesbian or falernian far theirs was the inward lustre that bespeaks an open soul unknowing to exclude the cheerful day a worthier glory far than that which gilds the outmost rind with darkness visible virtues that fast abide through lapse of years rather rubbed in than off homer october twenty first hector hurrying from rank to rank is likened to the moon wading in majesty from cloud to cloud we are reminded of the hour of the day by the fact that the woodcutter spreads now his morning meal in the recesses of the mountains having already laid his axe at the root of many lofty trees october twenty third nestor's simple repast after the rescue of Maucon is a fit subject for poetry. The woodcutter may sit down to his cold victuals, the hero to soldiers fair, and the wild Arab to his dried dates and figs without offence, but not so a modern gentleman to his dinner. October 24th it matters not whether these strains originate there in the grass or float thitherward like atoms of light from the minstrel days of greece the snowflakes fall thick and fast on a winter's day 
the winds are lulled, and the snow falls incessant, covering the tops of the mountains and the hills and the plains where the lotus tree grows and the cultivated fields and they are falling by the inlets and shores of the foaming sea but are silently dissolved by the waves speculation december seventh we may believe it but never do we live a quiet free life such as adams but are enveloped in an invisible network of speculations our progress is only from one such speculation to another and only at rare intervals do we perceive that it is no progress could we for a moment drop this by-play and simply wonder without reference or inference byron december eighth Nothing in nature is sneaking or chapfallen, as somewhat maltreated and slighted, but each is satisfied with its being, and so is as lavender and balm. If skunk cabbage is offensive to the nostrils of men, still has it not drooped in consequence, but trustfully unfolded its leaf of two hands' breadth. What was it to Lord Byron, whether England owned or disowned him? Whether he smelled sour and was skunk cabbage to the English nostril, or violet-like, the pride of the land and ornament of every lady's boudoir? Let not the oyster grieve that he has lost the race. He has gained as an oyster. Fairhaven December 15th. When winter fringes every bough with his fantastic wreath and puts the seal of silence now upon the leaves beneath, when every stream in its penthouse goes gurgling on its way, and in his gallery the mouse nibbleth the meadow hay. Methinks the summer still is nigh, and lurketh there below, as that same meadow mouse doth lie snug underneath the snow. And if perchance the chickadee lisp a faint note anon, the snow is summer's canopy which she herself put on. Rare blossoms deck the cheerful trees, and dazzling fruits depend. The north wind sighs a summer breeze, the nipping frosts to fend. Bring glad tidings unto me, while that I stand all ear, of a serene eternity that need not winter fear. Out on the silent pond straightway, the restless ice doth crack, and pond sprites merry gambols play amid the deafening rack. Eager I press me to the vale, as I had heard brave news, how nature held high festival, which it were hard to lose. I crack me with my neighbor ice and sympathizing quake, 
as each new rent darts in a trice across the gladsome lake. One with the cricket in the ground and fuel on the hearth resounds the rare domestic sound along the forest path. Fair haven is my huge tea-urn that seethes and sings to me, and eke the crackling faggots burn a homebred minstrelsy. Some scraps from an essay on sound and silence, written in the latter half of this month, December 1838. As the truest society approaches always nearer to solitude, so the most excellent speech finally falls into silence. We go about to find solitude and silence, as though they dwelt only in distant glens and the depths of the forest, venturing out from these fastnesses at midnight. Silence was, say we, before ever the world was, as if creation had displaced her, and were not her visible framework and foil. It is only favorite dells that she deigns to frequent, and we dream not that she is then imported into them when we wend thither, as Selden's butcher busied himself with looking after his knife when he had it in his mouth. For where man is, there is silence. Silence is the communing of a conscious soul with itself. If the soul attend for a moment to its own infinity, then and there is silence. She is audible to all men at all times in all places, and if we will, we may always hearken to her admonitions. Silence is ever less strange than noise, lurking amid the boughs of the hemlock or pine, just in proportion as we find ourselves there. The nuthatch, tapping the upright trunks by our side, is only a partial spokesman for the solemn stillness. She is always at hand with her wisdom, by roadsides and street corners, lurking in belfries, the cannon's mouth, and the wake of the earthquake, gathering up and fondling their puny din in her ample bosom. Those divine sounds which are uttered to our inward ear, which are breathed in with the zephyr or reflected from the lake, come to us noiselessly, bathing the temples of the soul as we stand motionless amid the rocks. The halloo is the creature of walls and mason work. The whisper is fittest in the depths of the wood or by the shore of the lake, but silence is best adapted to the acoustics of space. All sounds are her servants and purveyors, proclaiming not only that their mistress is, but is a rare mistress and earnestly to be sought after. Behind the most distinct and significant hovers always a more significant silence which floats it, 
the thunder is only our signal gun that we may know what communion awaits us not its dull sound but the infinite expansion of our being which ensues we praise and unanimously name sublime all sound is nearly akin to silence it is a bubble on her surface which straightway bursts an emblem of the strength and prolificness of the undercurrent it is a faint utterance of silence and then only agreeable to our auditory nerves when it contrasts itself with the former in proportion as it does this and is a heightener and intensifier of the silence it is harmony and purest melody every melodious sound is the ally of silence a help and not a hindrance to abstraction certain sounds more than others have found favor with the poets only as foils to silence anacreon's ode to the cicada we pronounce thee happy cicada for on the tops of the trees sipping a little dew like any king thou singest for thine are they all whatever thou seest in the fields and whatever the woods bear thou art the friend of the husbandman in no respect injuring any one and thou art honored among men sweet prophet of summer the muses love thee and phoebus himself loves thee and has given thee a shrill song age does not rack thee thou skilful earth-born song-loving unsuffering bloodless one almost thou art like the gods silence is the universal refuge the sequel of all dry discourses and all foolish acts as balm to our every chagrin as welcome after satiety as after disappointment that background which the painter may not daub be he master or bungler and which however awkward a figure he may have made in the foreground remains ever our inviolable asylum with what equanimity does the silent consider how his world goes settles the awards of virtue and justice is slandered and buffeted never so much and views it all as a phenomenon he is one with truth goodness beauty no indignity can assail him no personality disturb him the orator puts off his individuality and is then most eloquent when most silent he listens while he speaks and is a hearer along with his audience who has not hearkened to her infinite din she is truth's speaking trumpet which every man carries slung over his shoulder and when he will may apply to his ear she is the sole oracle 
the true Delphi and Dodona, which kings and courtiers would do well to consult, nor will they be balked by an ambiguous answer. Through her have all revelations been made. Just as far as men have consulted her oracle, they have obtained a clear insight, and their age been marked for an enlightened one. But as often as they have gone gadding abroad to a strange Delphi and her mad priestess, they have been benighted, and their age dark or leaden. These are garrulous and noisy eras, which no longer yield any sound. But the Grecian, or silent and melodious, era is ever sounding on the ears of men. A good book is the plectrum with which our silent lyres are struck. In all epics, when, after breathless attention, we come to the significant words he said, then especially our inmost man is addressed. We not unfrequently refer the interest which belongs to our own unwritten sequel to the written and comparatively lifeless page. Of all valuable books, this same sequel makes an indispensable part. It is the author's aim to say once and emphatically, he said. This is the most the bookmaker can attain to. If he make his volume a foil whereon the waves of silence may break, it is well. It is not so much the sighing of the blast as the pause, as Gray expresses it, quote, when the gust is recollecting itself, end quote, that thrills us, and is infinitely grander than the importunate howlings of the storm. At evening, silence sends many emissaries to me, some navigating the subsiding waves which the village murmur has agitated. It were vain for me to interpret the silence. She cannot be done into English. For six thousand years have men translated her, with what fidelity belonged to each, still is she little better than a sealed book. A man may run on confidently for a time, thinking he has her under his thumb, and shall one day exhaust her. But he too must at last be silent, and men remark only how brave a beginning he made. For when he at length dives into her, so vast is the disproportion of the told to the untold that the former will seem but the bubble on the surface where he disappeared. Nevertheless, we will go on, like those Chinese cliff swallows, feathering our nests with the froth, so they may one day be bred of life to such as dwell by the seashore. Anacreontics December 23rd Return of Spring Behold how, spring appearing, the graces send forth roses. Behold 
how the wave of the sea is made smooth by the calm. Behold how the duck dives. Behold how the crane travels, and Titan shines constantly bright. The shadows of the clouds are moving, the works of man shine. The earth puts forth fruits, the fruit of the olive puts forth. The cup of Bacchus is crowned. Along the leaves, along the branches, the fruit, bending them down, flourishes. Cupid Wounded Love once among roses, a sleeping bee, did not see but was stung, and, being wounded in the finger of his hand, cried for pain. Running as well as flying to the beautiful Venus, I am killed, mother, said he, I am killed and I die. A little serpent has stung me, winged, which they call a bee, the husbandman. And she said, If the sting of a bee afflicts you, how, think you, are they afflicted? Love whom you smite. Dated only 1838 Sometimes I hear the veery's silver clarion or the brazen note of the impatient jay, or in secluded woods the chickadee doles out her scanty notes, which sing the praise of heroes and set forth the loveliness of virtue evermore. Phoebe End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 1839 at the age of twenty-one to twenty-two, part one of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume one, eighteen thirty-seven to eighteen forty-six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three, part one. The Thaw, January eleventh. I saw the civil sun drying earth's tears her tears of joy that only faster flowed. Fain would I stretch me by the highway side to thaw and trickle with the melting snow that mingled soul and body with the tide. I too may through the pores of nature flow. But I, alas, nor trickle can nor fume, one jot to forward the great work of time. Tis mine to hearken while these ply the loom, so shall my silence with their music chime. The Dream Valley, January 20th The prospect of our river valley from Tahatawan Cliff appeared to me again in my dreams. Last night, as I lay gazing with shut eyes into the golden land of dreams, I thought I gazed adown a quiet reach 
of land and water prospect whose low beach was peopled with the now subsiding hum of happy industry whose work is done and as i turned me on my pillow oar i heard the lapse of waves upon the shore distinct as it had been at broad noonday and i were wandering at rockaway love we two that planets erst had been are now a double star and in the heavens may be seen where that we fixed are yet whirled with subtle power along into new space we enter and evermore with spheral song revolve about one center february third the deeds of king and meanest hedger stand side by side in heaven's ledger twill soon appear if we but look at evening into earth's day-book which way the great account doth stand between the heavens and the land the evening wind the eastern mail comes lumbering in with outmost waves of europe's din the western sighs adown the slope or mid the rustling leaves doth grope laden with news from californ what e'er transpired hath since morn how wags the world by briar and brake from hence to athabasca lake poetizing february eighth when the poetic frenzy seizes us we run and scratch with our pen delighting like the cock in the dust we make but do not detect where the jewel lies which perhaps we have in the meantime cast to a distance or quite covered up again february ninth it takes a man to make a room silent the peal of bells february tenth when the world grows old by the chimney side then forth to the youngling rocks i glide where over the water and over the land the bells are booming on either hand now up they go ding then down again dong and a while they swing to the same old song and the metal goes round at a single bound a lulling the fields with its measured sound till the tired tongue falls with a lengthened boom as solemn and loud as the crack of doom then changed is their measure to tone upon tone and seldom it is that one sound comes alone for they ring out their peals in a mingled throng and the breezes waft the loud ding-dong along when the echo has reached me in this lone vale i am straightway a hero in coat of mail i tug at my belt and i march on my post 
and feel myself more than a match for a host. I am on the alert for some wonderful thing, which somewhere's a taken place. Tis perchance the salute which our planet doth ring when it meeteth another in space. The Shrike February 25th Hark! Hark from out the thickest fog, warbles with might and main, the fearless shrike as all agog to find in fog his gain. His steady sails he never furls at any time o' year, and perched now on winter's curls he whistles in his ear. The Poet, March 3rd he must be something more than natural, even supernatural. Nature will not speak through, but along with him. His voice will not proceed from her midst, but breathing on her will make her the expression of his thought. He then poetizes when he takes a fact out of nature into spirit. He speaks without reference to time or place. His thought is one world, hers another. He is another nature, nature's brother. Kindly offices do they perform for one another. Each publishes the other's truth. Morning, April 4th. The atmosphere of morning gives a healthy hue to our prospects. Disease is a sluggard that overtakes, never encounters us. We have the start each day, and may fairly distance him before the dew is off. But if we recline in the bowers of noon, he will come up with us after all. The morning dew breeds no cold. We enjoy a diurnal reprieve in the beginning of each day's creation. In the morning, we do not believe in expediency. We will start afresh and have no patching, no temporary fixtures. The afternoon man has an interest in the past. His eye is divided, and he sees indifferently well either way. Drifting. Drifting in a sultry day on the sluggish waters of the pond, I almost cease to live and begin to be. A boatman stretched on the deck of his craft and dallying with the noon would be as apt an emblem of eternity for me as the serpent with his tail in his mouth. I am never so prone to lose my identity. I am dissolved in the haze. Disappointment April 7th, Sunday The tediousness and detail of execution never occur to the genius projecting. It always antedates the completion of its work. It condescends to give time a few hours to do its bidding in. Resolve most have sufficient contempt for what is mean to resolve that they will abstain from it 
and a few virtue enough to abide by their resolution. But not often does one attain to such lofty contempt as to require no resolution to be made. The Teamster, April 8th. There goes a six-horse team and a man by its side. He has rolled out of his cradle into a Tom and Jerry, and goes about his business while nature goes about hers, without standing agape at his condition. As though sixty years were not enough for these things. What have death and the cholera and the immortal destiny of man to do with the shipping interests? There is an unexplained bravery in this. What with bare astonishment one would think that man had his hands full for so short a term. But this is no drawback on the lace-working and cap-making interests. Some attain to such a degree of sang-froid and nonchalance as to be weavers of toilet cushions and manufacturers of pinheads, without once flinching or the slightest affection of the nerves for the period of a natural life. Fat Pine for Spearing April 9th Fat roots of pine, lying in rich veins as of gold or silver, even in old pastures where you would least expect it, make you realize that you live in the youth of the world, and you begin to know the wealth of the planet. Human nature is still in its prime, then. Bring axe, pickaxe, and shovel, and tap the earth here where there is most sap. The marrowy store gleams like some vigorous sinew, and you feel a new suppleness in your own limbs. These are the traits that conciliate man's moroseness and make him civil to his fellows. Every such pine root is a pledge of suavity. If he can discover absolute barrenness in any direction, there will be some excuse for peevishness. Society, April 14th. There is a terra firma in society as well as in geography, some whose ports you may make by dead reckoning in all weather. All the rest are but floating and fabulous Atlantides which sometimes skirt the western horizon of our intercourse. They impose only on seasick mariners who have put into some canary island on the frontiers of society. Circumstances, April 24th. Why should we concern ourselves with what has happened to us, and the unaccountable fickleness of events, and not rather with how we have happened to the universe, and it has demeaned itself in consequence? Let us record in each case the judgment we have awarded to circumstances. Acquaintance Cheap persons will stand upon ceremony because there is no other ground. 
but to the great of the earth we need no introduction, nor do they need any to us. The Kingdoms of the Earth April 25th If we see the reality in things, of what moment is the superficial and apparent? Take the earth and all the interests it has known. What are they beside one deep surmise that pierces and scatters them? The independent beggar disposes of all with one hardy, significant curse by the roadside. Tis true they are not worth a tinker's dam. Picture April 30th Of some illuminated pictures which I saw last evening, one representing the plain of Babylon with only a heap of brick dust in the center and an uninterrupted horizon bounding the desert struck me most. I would see painted a boundless expanse of desert, prairie, or sea without other object than the horizon, the heavens and the earth, the first and last painting. Where is the artist who shall undertake it? May 11th. The farmer keeps pace with his crops and the revolutions of the seasons, but the merchant with the fluctuations of trade. Observe how differently they walk in the streets. Vice and Virtue May 16th Virtue is the very heart and lungs of vice. It cannot stand up, but it lean on virtue. Who has not admired the twelve labors? And yet nobody thinks if Hercules had sufficient motive for racking his bones to that degree. Men are not so much virtuous as patrons of virtue, and everyone knows that it is easier to deal with the real possessor of a thing than the temporary guardian of it. THE FORM OF STRENGTH MAY 17TH We say justly that the weak person is flat, for, like all flat substances, he does not stand in the direction of his strength that is on his edge, but affords a convenient surface to put upon. He slides all the way through life. Most things are strong in one direction, a straw longitudinally, a board in the direction of its edge, a knee transversely to its grain. But the brave man is a perfect sphere, which cannot fall on its flat side, and is equally strong every way. The coward is wretchedly spheroidal at best, too much educated or drawn out on one side commonly and depressed on the other. Or he may be likened to a hollow sphere, whose disposition of matter is best when the greatest bulk is intended. Self-Culture, May 21st Who knows how incessant a surveillance a strong man may maintain over himself? 
how far subject passion and appetite to reason, and lead the life his imagination paints. Well has the poet said, quote, By manly mind, not e'en in sleep is will resigned. Unquote. By a strong effort may he not command even his brute body in unconscious moments? My Attic, June 4th. I sit here this 4th of June, looking out on men and nature from this that I call my perspective window, through which all things are seen in their true relations. This is my upper empire, bounded by four walls, viz. three of boards yellow-washed, facing the north, west, and south, respectively, and the fourth of plaster, likewise yellow-washed, fronting the sunrise, to say nothing of the purlieus and outlying provinces, unexplored as yet but by rats. The words of some men are thrown forcibly against you and adhere like burrs. Rencounter June twenty second, Saturday. I have within the last few days come into contact with a pure, uncompromising spirit that is somewhere wandering in the atmosphere, but settles not positively anywhere. Some persons carry about them the air and conviction of virtue, though they themselves are unconscious of it, and are even backward to appreciate it in others. Such it is impossible not to love. Still is their loveliness, as it were, independent of them, so that you seem not to lose it when they are absent, for when they are near, it is like an invisible presence which attends you. That virtue we appreciate is as much ours as another's. We see so much only as we possess. Sympathy, June 24th. Lately, alas, I knew a gentle boy, whose features all were cast in virtue's mold, as one she had designed for beauty's toy but after manned him for her own stronghold. On every side he open was as day, that you might see no lack of strength within, for walls and ports do only serve all way for a pretense to feebleness and sin. Say not that Caesar was victorious, with toil and strife who stormed the house of fame. In other sense, this youth was glorious, himself a kingdom wheresoe'er he came. No strength went out to get him victory when all was income of its own accord, for where he went none other was to see but all were parcel of their noble lord. He forayed like the subtle haze of summer that stilly shows fresh landscapes to our eyes, 
and revolutions works without a murmur or rustling of a leaf beneath the skies so i was taken unawares by this i quite forgot my homage to confess yet now am forced to know though hard it is i might have loved him had i loved him less each moment as we nearer drew to each a stern respect withheld us farther yet so that we seemed beyond each other's reach and less acquainted than when first we met we too were one while we did sympathize so could we not the simplest bargain drive and what avails it now that we are wise if absence doth this doubleness contrive eternity may not the chance repeat but i must tread my single way alone in sad remembrance that we once did meet and know that bliss irrevocably gone the spheres henceforth my elegy shall sing for elegy has other subject none each strain of music in my ears shall ring knell of departure from that other one make haste and celebrate my tragedy with fitting strain resound ye woods and fields sorrow is dearer in such case to me than all the joys other occasion yields isn't it then too late the damage to repair distance forsooth from my weak grasp hath reft the empty husk and clutch the useless tear but in my hands the wheat and kernel left if i but love that virtue which he is though it be scented in the morning air still shall we be truest acquaintances nor mortals know a sympathy more rare the book of gems july fourth with cunning plates the polished leaves were decked each one a window to the poet's world so rich a prospect that you might suspect in that small space all paradise unfurled it was a right delightful road to go marching through pastures of such fair herbage o'er hill and dale it led and to and fro from bard to bard making an easy stage wherever and anon i slaked my thirst like a tired traveller at some poet's well which from the teeming ground did bubbling burst and tinkling thence adown the page it fell still through the leaves its music you might hear till other springs fell faintly on the ear. End of chapter 3, part 1chapter three eighteen thirty nine at the age of twenty one to twenty two
Part Two of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume One, eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Part Two. Anur's Neck, July eleventh. At length we leave the river and take to the road which leads to the hilltop if by any means we may spy out what manner of earth we inhabit. East, west, north, and south, it is farm and parish, this world of ours. One may see how at convenient eternal intervals men have settled themselves without thought for the universe. How little matters it all they have built and delved there in the valley. It is, after all, but a feature in the landscape. Still, the vast impulse of nature breathes over all. The eternal winds sweep across the interval to-day, bringing mist and haze to shut out their works. Still the crow caws from Nauschatuck to a nurse-neck, as no feeble tradesman nor smith may do. And in all swamps the hum of mosquitoes drowns this modern hum of industry. Every man is a Roman forum. All things are up and down, east and west to me. In me is the forum out of which go the apian and sacred ways, and a thousand beside to the ends of the world. If I forget my centralness, and say a bean winds with or against the sun, and not right or left, it will not be true south of the equator. The Assabet, July 18th up this pleasant stream let's row for the live-long summer's day sprinkling foam where'er we go in wreaths as white as driven snow ply the oars away away now we glide along the shore chucking lilies as we go while the yellow sanded floor doggedly resists the oar like some turtle dull and slow now we stem the middle tide ploughing through the deepest soil ridges pile on either side while we through the furrow glide reaping bubbles for our toil dew before and drought behind onward all doth seem to fly Naught contents the eager mind, only rapids now are kind. Forward are the earth and sky. Sudden music strikes the ear, leaking out from yonder bank, fit such voyagers to cheer. Sure there must be naiads here who have kindly played this prank. There I know the cunning pack where yon self-sufficient rill all its tell-tale hath kept back through the meadows held its clack 
and now bubbleth its fill. Silent flows the parent stream, and if rocks do lie below, smothers with her waves the din, as it were a youthful sin, just as still and just as slow. But this gleeful little rill, purling round its storied pebble, tinkles to the selfsame tune from December until June, nor doth any drought enfeeble. See the sun behind the willows, rising through the golden haze, how he gleams along the billows, their white crests the easy pillows of his dew-besprinkled rays. Forward press we to the dawning, for Aurora leads the way, sultry noon and twilight scorning, in each dewdrop of the morning lies the promise of a day. Rivers from the sun do flow, springing with the dewy morn, voyagers gainst time do row, idle noon nor sunset know, ever even with the dawn. Since that first away, away, many a lengthy league we've rode, still the sparrow on the spray hastes to usher in the day with her simple stanzaed ode. The Breeze's Invitation, July 20th Come, let's roam the breezy pastures where the freest zephyrs blow, batten on the oak tree's rustle and the pleasant insect bustle dripping with the streamlet's flow. What if I no wings do wear through this solid-seeming air? I can skim like any swallow Whoso dareth let her follow, and we'll be a jovial pair. Like two careless swifts, let's sail. Zephyrus shall think for me, over hill and over dale. Riding on the easy gale, we will scan the earth and see. Yonder see that willow tree winnowing the buxom air. You a gnat, and I a bee. With our merry minstrelsy, we will make a concert there. One green leaf shall be our screen, till the sun doth go to bed. I the king, and you the queen, of that peaceful little green, without any subject's aid. To our music, Time will linger, and earth open wide her ear. Nor shall any need to tarry, to immortal verse to marry, such sweet music as he'll hear. July 24th Nature doth have her dawn each day, but mine are far between, Content, I cry, for sooth to say, mine brightest are, I ween. 
for when my son doth deign to rise, though it be her noontide, her fairest field in shadow lies, nor can my light abide. Sometimes I bask me in her day, conversing with my mate, but if we interchange one ray, forthwith her heats abate. Through his discourse I climb and see, as from some eastern hill, a brighter morrow rise to me than lieth in her skill. As twere two summer days in one, two Sundays come together. Our rays united make one sun with fairest summer weather. July 25th. There is no remedy for love but to love more. August 31st. Made seven miles and moored our boat on the west side of a little rising ground which in the spring forms an island in the river, the sun going down on one hand and our eminence contributing its shadow to the night on the other. In the twilight so elastic is the air that the sky seems to tinkle over farmhouse and wood. Scrambling up the bank of our terra incognita, we fall on huckleberries, which have slowly ripened here, husbanding the juices which the months have distilled for our peculiar use this night. If they had been rank poison, the entire simplicity and confidence with which we plucked them would have ensured their wholesomeness. The devout attitude of the hour asked a blessing on that repast. It was fit for the setting sun to rest on. From our tent here on the hillside, through that isosceles door, I see our lonely mast on the shore, it may be as an eternity fixture, to be seen in landscapes henceforth, or as the most temporary standstill of time, the boat just come to anchor, and the mast still rocking to find its balance. No human life is in night, the woods, the boat, the shore, yet is it lifelike, the warm pulse of a young life beats steadily underneath all this slight wind is where one artery approaches the surface and is skin deep while i write here i hear the foxes trotting about me over the dead leaves and now gently over the grass as if not to disturb the dew which is falling why should we not cultivate neighborly relations with the foxes? As if to improve upon our seeming advances, comes one to greet us nosewise under our tent curtain. Nor do we rudely repulse him. Is man powder and the fox flint and steel? Has not the time come when men and foxes shall lie down together? Hist! There, the musquash by the boat is taking toll of potatoes and melons. 
is not this the age of a community of goods his presumption kindles in me a brotherly feeling nevertheless i get up to reconnoitre and tread stealthily along the shore to make acquaintance with him but on the riverside i could see only the stars reflected in the water and now by some ripple ruffling the disk of a star i discover him in the silence of the night the sound of a distant alarm bell is borne to these woods even now men have fires and extinguish them and with distant horizon blazings and barking of dogs enact the manifold drama of life we begin to have an interest in sun moon and stars what time riseth orion which side the pole gropeth the bear east west north and south where are they what clock shall tell the hours for us billerica midnight september first sunday under an oak on the bank of the canal in chelmsford from ball's hill to billerica meeting-house the river is a noble stream of water flowing between gentle hills and occasional cliffs and well wooded all the way it can hardly be said to flow at all but rests in the lap of the hills like a quiet lake the boatmen call it a dead stream for many long reaches you can see nothing to indicate that men inhabit its banks nature seems to hold a sabbath herself to-day a still warm sun on river and wood and not breeze enough to ruffle the water cattle stand up to their bellies in the river and you think rembrandt should be here camped under some oaks in tingsboro on the east bank of the merrimack just below the ferry september second camped in merrimack on the west bank by a deep ravine september third in bedford on the west bank opposite a large rock above coos falls september fourth wednesday hookset east bank two or three miles below the village opposite mr mitchell's september fifth walked to concord new hampshire ten miles september sixth by stage to plymouth forty miles and on foot to tilton's inn thornton the scenery commences on sanbornton square whence the white mountains are first visible in campton it is decidedly mountainous september seventh walked from thornton through peeling and lincoln to franconia in lincoln visited stone flume and basin and in franconia the notch and saw the old man of the mountain september eighth walked from franconia to thomas j crawford's 
September 9th, at Crawford's. September 10th, ascended the mountain and rode to Conway. September 11th, rode to Concord. September 12th, rode to Hooksett and rode to Bedford, New Hampshire, or rather to the northern part of Merrimack, near the ferry, by a large island near which we camped. September 13th, rode and sailed to Concord, about fifty miles. The Wise Rest, September 17th. Nature never makes haste. Her systems revolve at an even pace. The bud swells imperceptibly, without hurry or confusion, as though the short spring days were an eternity. All her operations seem separately, for the time, the single object for which all things tarry. Why, then, should man hasten as if anything less than eternity were allotted for the last deed? Let him consume never so many eons, so that he go about the meanest task well, though it be but the paring of his nails. If the setting sun seems to hurry him to improve the day while it lasts, the chant of the crickets fails not to reassure him, even measured as of old, teaching him to take his own time henceforth forever. The wise man is restful, never restless or impatient. He each moment abides there where he is, as some walkers actually rest the whole body at each step, while others never relax the muscles of the leg till the accumulated fatigue obliges them to stop short. As the wise is not anxious that time wait for him, neither does he wait for it. October 22nd Nature will bear the closest inspection. She invites us to lay our eye level with her smallest leaf, and take an insect view of its plane. Aeschylus, November 5th. There was one man lived his own healthy attic life in those days. The words that have come down to us evidence that their speaker was a seer in his day and generation. At this day, they owe nothing to their dramatic form nothing to stage machinery and the fact that they were spoken under these or those circumstances. All display of art for the gratification of a factitious taste is silently passed by to come at the least particle of absolute and genuine thought they contain. The reader will be disappointed, however, who looks for traits of a rare wisdom or eloquence, and will have to solace himself, for the most part, with the poet's humanity and what it was in him to say. He will discover that, like every genius, he was a solitary liver and worker in his day. We are accustomed to say 
that the common sense of this age belonged to the seer of the last as if time gave him any vantage ground but not so i see not but genius must ever take an equal start and all the generations of men are virtually at a standstill for it to come and consider of them common sense is not so familiar with any truth but genius will represent it in a strange light to it let the seer bring down his broad eye to the most stale and trivial fact and he will make you believe it a new planet in the sky as to criticism man has never to make allowance to man there is naught to excuse naught to bear in mind all the past is here present to be tried let it approve itself if it can growth we are not apt to remember that we grow it is curious to reflect how the maiden waiteth patiently confiding as the unripe houstonia of the meadow for the slow-moving years to work their will with her perfect and ripen her like it to be fanned by the wind watered by the rain and receive her education at the hands of nature these young buds of manhood in the streets are like buttercups in the meadows surrendered to nature as they november seventh i was not aware till today of a rising and risen generation children appear to me as raw as the fresh fungi on a fence rail by what degrees of consanguinity is this succulent and rank-growing slip of manhood related to me what is it but another herb ranging all the kingdoms of nature drawing in sustenance by a thousand roots and fibres from all soils laconicism november eighth prometheus's answer to io's question who has bound him to the rock is a good instance voluma mendodian hephaisto dehid the will indeed of zeus of vulcan the hand also tesas de toda pros caco mothisate o santota arhin keto duluin veha such naked speech is the standing aside of words to make room for thoughts regret november thirteenth make the most of your regrets never smother your sorrow but tend and cherish it till it come to have a separate and integral interest to regret deeply is to live afresh by so doing you will be astonished to find yourself restored once more to all your emoluments despondency november fourteenth there is nowhere any apology for despondency 
always there is life which, rightly lived, implies a divine satisfaction. I am soothed by the raindrops on the door sill. Every globule that pitches thus confidently from the eaves to the ground is my life insurance. Disease and a raindrop cannot coexist. The east wind is not itself consumptive, but has enjoyed a rare health from of old. If a fork or brand stand erect, good is portended by it. They are the warrant of universal innocence. Farewell, November 19th. Light-hearted, thoughtless, shall I take my way when I to thee this being have resigned, well knowing where, upon a future day, with usurer's craft more than myself to find. Linnaeus, November 22nd. Linnaeus, setting out for Lapland, surveys his comb and spare shirt, leather breeches, and gauze cap to keep off gnats, with as much complacency as Bonaparte would a park of artillery to be used in the Russian campaign. His eye is to take in fish, flower, and bird, quadruped, and biped. The quiet bravery of the man is admirable. These facts have even a novel interest. November 29th. Many brave men have been there, thank fortune, but I shall never grow brave by comparison. When I remember myself, I shall forget them. Bravery. December 2nd. A rare landscape immediately suggests a suitable inhabitant, whose breath shall be its wind whose moods its seasons, and to whom it will always be fair. To be chafed and worried, and not as serene as nature, does not become one whose nature is as steadfast as she. We do all stand in the front ranks of the battle every moment of our lives. Where there is a brave man, there is the thickest of the fight, there the post of honor. Not he who procures a substitute to go to Florida is exempt from service. He gathers his laurels in another field. Waterloo is not the only battleground, as many and fatal guns are pointed at my breast now as are contained in the English arsenals. End of chapter 3, part 2. Chapter 3, 1839, at the age of 21 to 22, part 3 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume 1, 1837 to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER THREE, PART THREE Noon, undated 
straightway dissolved, like to the morning mists, or rather like the subtler mists of noon, stretched I far up the neighboring mountain's sides, adown the valleys, through the nether air, bathing with fond expansiveness of soul, the tiniest blade as the sublimest cloud, what time the bittern solitary bird hides now her head amid the whispering fern, and not a paddock vexes all the shore, nor feather ruffles the incumbent air, save where the wagtail interrupts the noon. From a chapter on bravery, script, December. Bravery deals not so much in resolute action as in healthy and assured rest. Its palmy state is a staying at home and compelling alliance in all directions. The brave man never heareth the din of war. He is trustful and unsuspecting, so observant of the least trait of good or beautiful that if you turn toward him the dark side of anything, he will still see only the bright. One moment of serene and confident life is more glorious than a whole campaign of daring. We should be ready for all issues, not daring to die, but daring to live. To the brave, even danger is an ally. In their unconscious daily life are all braver than they know. Man slumbers and wakes in his twilight with the confidence of noonday. He is not palsied nor struck dumb by the inexplicable riddle of the universe. A mere surveyor's report or clause in a preemption bill contains matter of quite extraneous interest of a subdued but confident tone, evincing such a steadiness in the writer as would have done wonders at Bunker's Hill or Marathon. Where there is the collected eye, there will not fail the effective hand. He delta ora du drasimon. Science is always brave, for to know is to know good, Doubt and danger quail before her eye. What the coward overlooks in his hurry, she calmly scrutinizes, breaking ground like a pioneer for the array of arts in her train. Cowardice is unscientific, for there cannot be a science of ignorance. There may be a science of war, for that advances but a retreat is rarely well conducted. If it is, then is it an orderly advance in the face of circumstances. If his fortune deserts him, the brave man in pity still abides by her. Samuel Johnson and his friend Savage, compelled by poverty to pass the night in the streets, resolve that they will stand by their country. 
the state of complete manhood is virtue and virtue and bravery are one this truth has long been in the languages all the relations of the subject are hinted at in the derivation and analogies of the latin words vir and virtus and the greek egatos and aristos language in its settled form is the record of men's second thoughts a more faithful utterance than they can momentarily give what men say is so sifted and obliged to approve itself as answering to a common want that nothing absolutely frivolous obtains currency in the language the analogies of words are never whimsical and meaningless but stand for real likenesses only the ethics of mankind and not of any particular man give point and vigor to our speech. The coward was born one day too late, for he has never overtaken the present hour. He is the younger son of creation, who now waiteth till the elder decease. He does not dwell on the earth as though he had a deed of the land in his pocket, not as another lump of nature, as imperturbable an occupant as the stones in the field. He has only rented a few acres of time and space, and thinks that every accident portends the expiration of his lease. He is a non-proprietor, a serf, in his moral economy nomadic, having no fixed abode. When danger appears, he goes abroad and clings to straws. Bravery and cowardice are kindred correlatives with knowledge and ignorance, light and darkness, good and evil. If you let a single ray of light through the shutter, it will go on diffusing itself without limit till it enlighten the world but the shadow that was never so wide at first as rapidly contracts till it comes to naught. The shadow of the moon, when it passes nearest the sun, is lost in space ere it can reach our earth to eclipse it. Always the system shines with uninterrupted light, for as the sun is so much larger than any planet, no shadow can travel far into space. We may bask always in the light of the system, always may step back out of the shade. No man's shadow is as large as his body if the rays make a right angle with the reflecting surface. Let our lives be passed under the equator with the sun in the meridian. There is no ill which may not be dissipated like the dark if you let in a stronger light upon it. Overcome evil with good. Practice no such narrow economy as they whose bravery amounts to no more light than a farthing candle, before which most objects cast a shadow wider than themselves. 
It was a conceit of Plutarch, accounting for the preferences given to signs observed on the left hand, that men may have thought things terrestrial and mortal directly over against heavenly and divine things, and do conjecture that the things which to us are on the left hand the gods send down from their right hand. If we are not blind, we shall see how a right hand is stretched over all, as well the unlucky as lucky, and that the ordering soul is only right-handed, distributing with one palm all our fates. Men have made war from a deeper instinct than peace. War is but the compelling of peace. When the world is declared under martial law, every Esau retakes his birthright, and what there is in him does not fail to appear. He wipes off all old scores and commences a new account. The world is interested to know how any soul will demean itself in so novel a position. But when war too, like commerce and husbandry, gets to be a routine, and men go about it as indented apprentices, the hero degenerates into a marine and the standing army into a standing jest. No pains are spared to do honor to the brave soldier. All guilds and corporations are taxed to provide him with fit harness and equipment. His coat must be red as the sunset, or blue as the heavens. Gold or silver, pinchbeck or copper, solid or superficial, mark him for fortune's favorite. The skill of a city enchases and tempers his sword-blade. The Tyrian die confounds him with emperors and kings. Wherever he goes, music proceeds and prepares the way for him. His life is a holiday, and the contagion of his example unhinges the universe. The world puts by work and comes out to stare. He is the one only man. He recognizes no time-honored castes and conventions, no fixtures but transfixtures, no governments at length settled on a permanent basis. One tap of the drum sets the political and moral harmonies all ajar. His ethics may well bear comparison with the priest's. He may rally, charge, retreat in an orderly manner, but never flee nor flinch. Each more melodious note I hear brings sad reproach to me, that I alone afford the ear, who would the music be? The brave man is the sole patron of music. He recognizes it for his mother tongue, a more mellifluous and articulate language than words, in comparison with which speech is recent and temporary. It is his voice, 
his language must have the same majestic movement and cadence that philosophy assigns to the heavenly bodies the steady flux of his thought constitutes time in music the universe falls in and keeps pace with it which before proceeded singly and discordant hence our poetry and song when bravery first grew afraid and went to war it took music along with it the soul delighted still to hear the echo of its own voice especially the soldier insists on agreement and harmony always indeed it is that friendship there is in war that makes it chivalrous and heroic it was the dim sentiment of a noble friendship for the purest soul the world has seen that gave to Europe a crusading era. The day of tilts and tournaments has gone by, but no herald summons us to the tournament of love. The brave warrior must have harmony, if not melody, at any sacrifice consider what shifts he makes there are the bagpipe the gong the trumpet the drum either the primitive central african or indian or the brass european ever since jericho fell down before a blast of ram's horns the martial and musical have gone hand in hand if the soldier marches to the sack of a town, he must be preceded by drum and trumpet, which shall, as it were, identify his cause with the accordant universe. All woods and walls echo back his own spirit, and the hostile territory is then preoccupied for him. He is no longer insulated, but infinitely related and familiar. The roll-call musters for him all the forces of nature. All sounds, and more than all, silence, do fife and drum for us. The least creaking doth wet all our senses and emit a tremulous light, like the aurora borealis over things as polishing expresses the vein in marble and the grain in wood, so music brings out what of heroic lurks anywhere. To the sensitive soul, the universe has its own fixed measure, which is its measure also, and as a regular pulse is inseparable from a healthy body. So is its healthiness dependent on the regularity of its rhythm. In all sounds the soul recognizes its own rhythm and seeks to express its sympathy by a correspondent movement of the limbs. When the body marches to the measure of the soul, then is true courage and invincible strength. The coward would reduce this thrilling sphere music to a universal wail, this melodious chant to a nasal cant. He thinks to conciliate 
all hostile influences by compelling his neighborhood into a partial concord with himself. But his music is no better than a jingle which is akin to a jar, jars regularly recurring. He blows a feeble blast of slender melody, because nature can have no more sympathy with such a soul than it has of cheerful melody in itself. Hence hears he no accordant note in the universe, and is a coward, or consciously outcast and deserted man. But the brave man, without drum or trumpet, compels concord everywhere by the universality and tunefulness of his soul. Quote, Take a metallic plate, says Coleridge, and strew sand on it. Sound a harmonic chord over the sand, and the grains will whirl about in circles and other geometrical figures, all, as it were, depending on some point relatively at rest. Sound a discord, and every grain will whisk about without any order at all, in no figures and with no points of rest. The brave man is such a point of relative rest over which the soul sounds ever a harmonic chord. Music is either a sedative or a tonic to the soul. I read that, quote, Plato thinks the gods never gave men music, the science of melody and harmony, for mere delectation or to tickle the ear, but that the discordant parts of the circulations and beauteous fabric of the soul and that of it roves about the body, and many times, for want of tune and air, breaks forth into many extravagances and excesses, might be sweetly recalled, and artfully wound up to their former consent and agreement. By dint of wind and stringed instruments, the coward endeavors to put the best face on the matter, whistles to keep his courage up. There are some brave traits related by Plutarch, e.g., Homer acquaints us how Ajax, being to engage in a single combat with Hector, bade the Grecians pray to the gods for him, and while they were at their devotions, he was putting on his armor. On another occasion, a storm arises, quote, which as soon as the pilot sees, he falls to his prayers and invokes his tutelar demons, but neglects not in the meantime to hold to the rudder and let down the main yard. Homer directs his husbandmen before he either plough or sow, to pray to the terrestrial Jove and the venerable Ceres, but with his hand upon the plough-tail. Arhigar otos tu nikan tu tarin. Verily, to be brave is the beginning of victory. 
the Romans made fortune surname to fortitude, for fortitude is that alchemy that turns all things to good fortune. The man of fortitude, whom the Latins call fortis, is no other than that lucky person whom fors favors, or ver sume fortis. If we will, every bark may carry Caesar and Caesar's fortune. The brave man stays at home. For an impenetrable shield, stand inside yourself. He was an errant coward who first made shields of brass. For armor of proof, mia vertute mi involvo. I wrap myself in my virtue. Tumble me down, and I will sit upon my ruins, smiling yet. The bravest deed, which for the most part is left quite out of history, which alone wants the staleness of a deed done and the uncertainty of a deed doing, is the life of a great man. To perform exploits is to be temporarily bold, as becomes a courage that ebbs and flows, the soul quite vanquished by its own deed subsiding into indifference and cowardice. But the exploit of a brave life consists in its momentary completeness. Friendship Fall of 1839 then first I conceive of a true friendship when some rare specimen of manhood presents itself. It seems the mission of such to commend virtue to mankind, not by any imperfect preaching of her word, but by their own carriage and conduct. We may then worship moral beauty without the formality of a religion. They are some fresher wind that blows, some new fragrance that breathes. They make the landscape and the sky for us. The rules of other intercourse are all inapplicable to this. We are one virtue, one truth, one beauty. All nature is our satellite, whose light is dull and reflected. She is subaltern to us, an episode to our poem. But we are primary and radiate light and heat to the system. I am only introduced once again to myself. Conversation, contact, familiarity are the steps to it and instruments of it, but it is most perfect when these are done and distance and time oppose no barrier. I need not ask any man to be my friend, more than the sun, the earth, to be attracted by him. It is not his to give, nor mine to receive. I cannot pardon my enemy. Let him pardon himself. Commonly we degrade love and friendship by presenting them under the aspect of a trivial dualism. 
what matter a few words more or less with my friend with all mankind they will still be my friends in spite of themselves let them stand aloof if they can as though the most formidable distance could rob me of any real sympathy or advantage no when such interests are at stake time and distance and difference fall into their own places but alas to be actually separated from that parcel of heaven we call our friend with the suspicion that we shall no more meet in nature is source enough for all the elegies that ever were written but the true remedy will be to recover our friend again piecemeal wherever we can find a feature as etes gathered up the members of his son which medea had strewn in her path the more complete our sympathy the more our senses are struck dumb and we are repressed by the delicate respect so that to indifferent eyes we are least his friend because no vulgar symbols pass between us on afterthought perhaps we come to fear that we have been the losers by such seeming indifference but in truth that which withholds us is the bond between us my friend will be as much better than myself as my aspiration is above my performance this is most serene autumn weather the chirp of crickets may be heard at noon over all the land as in summer they are heard only at nightfall so now by their incessant chirp they usher in the evening of the year the lively decay of autumn promises as infinite duration and freshness as the green leaves of spring End of chapter three everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.